There's an old legend told that along a seacoast, wrecks often occurred and lives are lost. And a small group of people banded together and said, we've got to do something about it. So they built a little hut, bought a rubber raft, and whenever they learned of a wreck at the sea, they would risk their lives to go into the waters and to pull people from the brink of death. Many were saved, some were lost. And as people who were rescued came to get their lives back together and people in the community learned about this, they joined their ranks. They gave their time, they gave their energy, they even gave money to expand that work. They bought additional boats, they trained their crews. And anytime they heard the alarm that there was been a wreck, they went out there and risked their lives. Over the course of time though, as this place grew, more and more people began to want to invest in it. So they expanded even further and they decided they needed to make it a little more comfortable for those who were already rescued, who wanted to hang around that life-saving station. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds with mattresses. They opened up a cafe where people could sit down and enjoy their favorite beverage and chat with their friends. In fact, some people even found that, that it was a great place to have a meal. So they began having dinners at that place. And it became a great gathering place for the community. They kept the life-saving motif because there were life-saving rings on the walls and someplace there were pictures of some of the people who were rescued from the waters. They decided, though, that this, this was risky work. In fact, they needed, to be, they needed to have people who were very good at it. So they hired a crew to do the life-saving work. And so whenever there was a wreck, that life-saving crew went out. But here's what happened. One time there was a major wreck. And boat after boat went out to rescue folks and brought them in. And they were shivering. They were wet. They were injured, bleeding. And when they brought them into the life-saving station, it just made a, a royal mess. There was just stuff everywhere. It was like chaos. And at the next uh, business meeting, the property committee said, you know what? We need to put a shower house outside the building so that people could clean up before they're brought into the life-saving station. In fact, they, they began to rumble among themselves and there began to be a division. In fact, a debate rose where some said, hey, do you know what? These, these rescue missions are costing us quite a bit. And they're really taking a toll on our facility. And even those who were paid to go out, the crews said, you know, those, those wrecks happen at the most inconvenient times, the middle of the night, the cold of winter. We're getting tired of it. And yet there was another small group of people that said, guys, gals, remember, this is life-saving stuff. We've got to do whatever it takes to rescue those who are perishing. Well, one day they took a vote and the majority won. And so that little group of people with the passion moved down the road, built a little hut, bought a rubber raft, and whenever there was a crash at sea, sent people out on a mission to rescue them. But you know what happened over the course of time? The same thing happened to that place that happened to the former place. And a little group went down the road and established a little hut, bought a boat, and began a life-saving station. You go down on that seacoast today, here's what you'll find. Dotted along the highway, a number of buildings that say on the heading, life-saving station. Yet very few lives are being saved. If you think through that, it's a parable of the church. God has placed us here to rescue the perishing, to make great sacrifices, to go out in the dangerous places, to rescue those who are lost. Yet it's so easy for us over the course of time to drift and think, hey, what about us? What about my needs, my wants, my desires? And the problem is oftentimes we drift so far over there we forget and we don't hear the cries anymore of those who are perishing. And I want to share with you, God wants us to go back to that mission. 
See, isn't that what God did for us when he sent Jesus? That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son on a rescue mission to go in this dark, difficult, dangerous place called earth, and he went among us to save the lost? That's what Jesus' mission was. In fact, last week I told you that uh, when Joseph was told by the angel of the baby they were about to have, the angel said to him, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people. He will rescue his people from their sins, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And so last week, I, I shared with you that oftentimes we go through life wondering, I wonder if God's really with me. I know up here he is, but here it doesn't feel like it. I'm going through a time of life where I really question whether God is with me. And one of those is the storms of life. Sometimes we go through a storm where things get, get thrown at us. I mean, circumstances swirl. We're caught off balance. It feels like we're sinking. And we wonder, is he really with me right now? And I want to assure you, he is. Sometimes it seems, seems like Jesus is at a distance, but he's growing our faith. He's causing us to trust him even more, but definitely he is with us. And some of you really resonated with that because you were in a place of life where you need to be reminded that Jesus is with you right now. But I want to share with you today that what we're going to talk about today applies to every single believer, everyone who calls himself a disciple, that Jesus promises to be with you in a special way. And that special way is when we join him in his life-saving mission. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read for you. It's called the, the Great Commission. It's the very last verses of Matthew's gospel. It says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, in this is a purpose and a promise. Purpose. This is the Great Commission. By the way, I grew up in a church and I never heard this, this passage. Never knew it. Never knew it existed. I went off to Bible college and one of the first classes I was in had us read this passage and write a paper on it. What is Jesus saying to us through this passage? So I studied the passage and I concluded that Jesus called his disciples to go out and make disciples. And he says, well, what about you? He says, well, the context is his disciples. Jesus didn't say that all of us are to do that. He said, well, wait, wait a minute. If Jesus told them to go make disciples and then to teach them everything that he commanded them, didn't he command them to make disciples? Is it kind of a, the circle where you make disciples who then go out and make disciples who then go out and make disciples? And I said, oh, I think I'm getting it now. That's our purpose, to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. See, it's so easy to think, well, that's part of the job. Some people, some people lead people to Christ, other people help them grow up. But they're actually weaved together. We help lead people to Christ, grow them up so that they'll participate in helping to lead people to Christ, who then grow up, who then will participate in helping to bring people to Christ. It's a perpetual circle. We keep doing it. And it's not the job of just a certain group of people to do the outreach. It's all of us, all of us who will call ourselves disciples. If you're a disciple, you need to go. Go and do this. Now, when I, when I began to think about Adam and Eve and the mandate they were given in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told, be fruitful and multiply. No one else was given that mandate, just Adam and Eve. Think about this. When their kids grew up and says, mom and dad, that mandate's not for us, it was for you. I, the human race would have died off. Obviously, it's got to continue. The mandate continues, and every generation is to be fruitful and multiply, and that's why we're here today. 
And in the same way in the spiritual realm, we who know Christ then help other people come to know Christ. That's our purpose. That's our primary purpose. And a purpose comes with a promise. Jesus says, when you're engaged in this, I will be with you always to the end, till it's fulfilled. I will be with you in a special way. I will empower you. I will equip you. I will help you to be successful. Go out and be my representatives in this world. I am sending you to go out and do this. It's a promise that he's with us in a special way. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I have. The joy and the privilege of being involved with with someone who's given their life to Christ. Mm. Maybe sharing the gospel, maybe saying a prayer with someone, maybe even baptizing someone is an incredible experience. I've had children in my life. I've had neighbors, friends, people I've gotten to know in this church that I've been part of that process. And it's a thrill it's like being, the, being in the delivery room and, and whether you're the doctor pulling the baby out or someone else helping, you get to experience that moment. It's incredible. And every believer should have that experience in their lives. It's for all of us. It's not just for the Billy Grahams or for the pastors. It's something that we all should experience. But here's the truth. Jesus promises to help us fulfill his mission. And how do we do that? He says, do it while you're going. He says, go and make disciples. In fact, the international standard version of the Bible says this, therefore, as you go... Some people say it's it's, as you are going, make disciples. So it it, it fits both ways. As you go through life, locally, you you go to work, you go to school, go to the gym, go to your home in your neighborhood, be mindful of the people around you that need to know Jesus. Start reaching out, make contact. That's locally. But then globally, if you're going to reach the nations, you got to get out of your area. Go. Sometimes you have to get up and go. You got to go on a trip. You got to go overseas. You got to go to another place. Now, some of us will do that, and some of us probably will never go to another country to do that. But all of us should have a heart for that, to want to go and reach people for Christ. It starts locally and extends globally. You know, uh, Julie and I watched this special called The Chosen Christmas Special, which, by the way, is going to debut tonight for free. So if you're a Chosen fan, you should watch it. But one of the phrases that's mentioned in that over and over again is that people must know. People must know. People must know about Jesus. People got to know. They've got to know what Jesus did for them. And you and I are the ones that are the messengers to tell them. Now, I want to look at an example in Jesus' life that I think has some powerful lessons for us of how to reach people around us as we go through life. And it's found in Luke 11, Jesus' encounter as he's going through the town of Jericho. Here's how it starts. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Uh, we're we're going to find two seekers in this story. The first one is Zacchaeus. Who is he seeking? Jesus. Jesus. He's he's been curious, he's heard stories, he wants to get a a better glimpse of who Jesus is. He wants to get very close. Here's a a, a man who's seeking this odd preacher who's traveling through town, but has a compelling message. And we're going to learn a little bit later that Jesus also is looking for this odd little man who's got an interesting life story. And these two seekers meet on this road in Jericho. Now... From Jesus, we're going we're to see how to understand the heart of a seeker and how to minister to this person to bring them closer to Jesus. And the reason this is so important is because we are in a season of the year, that is the best season of the year when people are most open to hearing about Jesus. Because they're listening to Christmas carols, they're watching TV shows that bring Jesus in and nobody's going, oh, not another Christmas song about Jesus. They're actually saying, you know, maybe there is some truth to this. 
And so for us to start to reach out and say, hey, would you like to go to Christmas Eve service with me? People are more open to going to Christmas Eve service than any other service the entire year. And I want to urge you, invite someone. Invite someone. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But let's look at Zacchaeus. Let's understand those who are seeking the Lord. What are they like? Not everyone is a genuine seeker, but many are like Zacchaeus. And he's first described as small in stature. I like how Luke is very politically correct. Um, He's not short. He's small in stature. It's not like the Sunday school song that Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. I don't have any man who wants to be called a wee little man. Okay? Hey, wee little man. Boom. You know, don't you call me that. You know, he's politically correct. You know, I went online just to see what are, what are some other politically correct phrases? How do we describe people? And they're actually out there. These are actually serious descriptions. I am not a tall person. I am vertically inconvenienced. Okay? I did not know that, but now, I'm, now I am. Okay, some of you, men who are bald, you're not bald. You're follically challenged. Okay? You're not old. You're chronologically gifted. An unmarried person isn't single. They're flying solo. People aren't lazy. They're just motivationally deficient. An overweight person is a person of substance. A metabolic overachiever. Okay? Zacchaeus was a man small in stature. We know that about him. Here's what else we know. Uh, He was a chief tax collector. Chief tax collector. See, tax collectors were very despised in biblical times. And here's why. A tax collector was a Jewish man who turned his back on his own people to work for the Roman government, to go house to house to collect taxes. And the Roman government would have them collect a certain amount per region. And what was above that, whatever they took in above that, they got to keep. And Zacchaeus was not only a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, which meant he was over the region. So he was a very wealthy man. He, he dressed better than the average person. He lived in a bigger home than the average person. He ate richer food than the average person. Zacchaeus was someone that the other people looked at and said, oh my goodness, that guy's killing us. He was not allowed in the synagogue. Tax collectors were not allowed to worship in the synagogue. Do you know who the friends of tax collectors were? Other tax collectors. Right. That's why you find in Matthew's gospel a party. And who's all there? Tax collectors. That's all they can feel comfortable with. No one else wants to be around them. They're just despised people. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He seems to have it all except something's missing. And what you're going to find when someone's seeking the Lord is they come to a place in life where they realize that there's something missing. Something missing. He feels something's missing. He had money. Money that could buy many things. Could buy clothes, food, housing, transportation. Could buy a lot of stuff. But could not buy joy, contentment, friendship, forgiveness. None of that. Things that money can't buy. And his life got to a place where he realized that, that money wasn't his savior. You know, Augustine early church father said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in each of us that only God can fill. And yet we tend to go through life, we try to jerry-rig the system and say like, well, I'm going to try something else, see if it fits. Uh, I'm going to try money. Money's a big one. If I can just get enough money, if I can just make a little more, I'll have significance, I'll have security, never have to worry about anything, I'll have all the friends I'd ever want. You know, for a while it works, but there comes a place where you realize that money doesn't save you. You, you could think your appearance does that. If I can just, 
you know, get that surgery, if I can get that color, if I can get those muscles, if I can do that thing, get the new teeth, you know, you know, right glasses, if I can dress with the right clothes, man, I'll have it made. But then we realize you know, that that doesn't give me the contentment and the peace and the joy and the friendship I want. Amen. Some of us think that if I can just marry that certain person or if we can have kids, they'll solve everything. And while it's great to have a spouse and great to have kids, it's not the answer. In fact, it could be the start of a lot of problems. A lot of challenges. Not that that's bad, it's just, it's not the answer. It doesn't save you. You need something more. Some people turn to destructive things, alcohol, drugs, pornography, crime, gangs. Trying to fill that hole. I'm trying to find something. Maybe this will work. And none of those fit. You know why? It's a void that only God can fill. And we realize that when we, when we come to a place in life where I'm, it seems like something's missing, I'm like a machine that has a wire that's disconnected. Or, or I have, the batteries have never been put in. I just, I'm not getting it. I'm not experiencing life as it was meant to be. And you can never experience life as it was meant to be unless Jesus is there at the throne. Amen. Unless he's in that place in life where now everything's starting to fit together. And here's the truth. Every person all around the world has that same need. The God-shaped vacuum that only Jesus can fill. Something's missing. Here's something else. They crave a relationship more than rules and rituals because Zacchaeus had religion. That's another thing. People try to fill it with religion. If I can just get my religion down, practice it, hum a lot, bow a lot, give a lot, you know, worship a lot, read the books, do all those things, I can learn and earn my way to salvation. But you can't. You find that's hollow too. In fact, if, if Zacchaeus thought religion was the answer, he already had it. He was Jewish. He had rituals. He had, he had the books. He had the teachings, but something still was missing, and that was Jesus. He wanted something that satisfied in a deeper way. This is important to remember that, that Christianity is at its heart about a relationship, not a religion. Now, let me clarify. Religion by itself is not bad, but when religion, because Christianity is a religion, has rituals, has beliefs, has teachings, but religion without Jesus then gets to be trusted on, like, that can save me. You know, my whatever religion is, that's going to save me. No, it won't. Jesus. And with Jesus comes beliefs and, and rituals like communion or baptism and things like that. But those don't save you. Jesus does. The reason I say this is because when you are trying to convince someone of what they really need, you have to be careful that you're not selling the church because sometimes we can tell people like, oh, we got the greatest program. We got, oh, you got to come to this. This is such a great program. And, and here's what we do. And it's so fun or it's so good and so meaningful. Or we can say, hey, we're, we're the church. We got a great coffee bar at our church. And the scones are out of this world. I mean, you should try. Try the caramel latte, you know. You know trying to sell the church, you know, products. Uh, you can even say like, oh, you got to come to the youth ministry. We got this coolest youth pastor, worship pastor, senior pastor, whatever it is. You got to come and hear this person. And the problem with that is people fail. And there, there might be better coffee down the road or better music some other place. And we are going to fail people. Because I'm finding out more and more in our culture, people are getting turned off to church, though they're not turned off to Jesus. And it'd be better for us to promote Jesus rather than the church. Amen. Because the church has, has problems. And I can look all across America, you know, I can't defend everything every church does or says. But I'll tell you this, the church is the bride of Christ and he loves her with all of her wrinkles and blemishes. And I sometimes think when Jesus hears people bash the church, he wants to slap them up a little bit and say, quit talking about my wife that way. 
That's my wife. That's my bride. I know she's not perfect. I'm working on her. Okay? Church, the church... The church is full of broken people, let's be honest. And when people say, you know, your church is full of hypocrites, I know, we're a bunch of sinners. But, but to criticize the church for being full of sinners, it's like going to the hospital, go up to Memorial Hospital and say, oh, I, can't, I cannot believe it, there's sick people everywhere. Every floor I go on is people are sick or injured, you know. Golly. When you come to church, you're going to find broken people who struggle with sin, okay? And there's room for you too. Okay, room for one more. So we're all struggling. But all that to say, hey, we've got to be careful that we keep the focus on the main thing. It's what people think and believe about Jesus that makes the biggest difference in their life. That's what gets them in to eternity is Jesus. So that's the core issue. Keep the focus there. Something else I've observed with Zacchaeus that I see in seekers is they're very humble people. They're humble people. They're willing to do things that might look foolish in the eyes of other people. See, here's Zacchaeus, small of stature, can't see above the crowds. So what does he do? He runs down the road to where there's a sycamore tree, climbs up it, and then he's sitting there, perched there. I mean, think about this. This guy is a dignified guy. He's a businessman. Men, men didn't run in those days, and they definitely didn't climb trees. That's stuff kids did. This dignified man's acting like a kid. And yet Jesus sees it and goes, oh my goodness, I'm impressed by that. Because didn't Jesus say that we should become like kids? Yes. Didn't Jesus one time grab a child among his disciples when they were jockeying for who's the greatest and says, you know what? Put that kid right here and says, unless you become like this child, humble yourself and become like this child, you'll never uh, see the kingdom of God. You'll be the greatest. The greatest is those who accept the kingdom like this little child. See, people who want to get close to Jesus are not afraid to look foolish. They'll raise their hand. They'll kneel in prayer. They'll walk down a long aisle in front of other people. They'll even get baptized in front of strangers. They don't care. You know why? They'll do anything they can to get close to Jesus. You know, a couple weeks ago, I think you guys, if you were here, you saw it. Darren Fahey, he was up here in the baptistry. He was baptizing someone. He says, hey, church, if, if there's anybody out here, if you hear God talking to you, you need to just obey him right away. Just do what he's telling you to do. Some guy stood up, walked down the aisle. I was like, oh, no, what's happening? Is he mad? What does he want? He came up, and he says, God's telling me to go get baptized, so I want to go get baptized right now. Amen. So they took him back there, and a couple minutes later, he was in the baptistry getting baptized. He didn't care what anybody else thought. See, God, God wants us to be willing to be bold for him, bold for him. People who want to get close to Jesus don't care what everyone else thinks. Zacchaeus didn't care. If it takes climbing a tree, I'm going to climb a tree. So what does Jesus do? He says, hey, you. You're different than everybody else. I want to follow up with you. So here's what happened. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Understand Jesus' mission? Here's why I came. I'm a seeker. I'm a seeker too. I'm seeking to save the lost. So what can we learn from Jesus? How can we excel in seeking the lost? 
You know, as I said, my hope for you is that you would have an experience of being part of someone else's salvation. Maybe you'll be part of the beginning stage. Maybe you're part of praying with them. Maybe you'll be the person that gets to baptize someone. But it's just a thrill to be in that process of helping someone else come to Jesus. And I would say that there are some people in your life who are seekers and some people who are just downright stubborn. And there's a difference. So many of us bang our heads against the wall at work because there's this guy that keeps, we talk about religion, but he's always bringing up these arguments and he wants to debate and I just can't. So I come back with more verses and he comes back with, he just argues, give it up. You're not gonna win a debater over. I've never seen anyone debated to Christ. They've already entrenched themselves and are like, okay, bring it on. I'm gonna bring it right back to you. What we need to do is think, who are the people that are curious, who aren't defiant, who actually are kind of open to hearing more about Jesus and move with them. Because Jesus even told his own disciples, when you go into a village and you bring the message and, and they don't receive you, dust your feet off and move on. And sometimes the best thing to do is quit arguing with someone because you're not gonna change them. And you only have so much time invested in those who are already kind of moving or open to moving forward in their life. You know, go after those who you call seekers. Now, I'm not saying... Forget about the other people, but I would say pray for them. Pray that their hearts would be softened. There's a pastor in the Midwest. They had a big baptism Sunday. And after the service, he was just like on cloud nine. And he ran into this woman in the stairwell of the church who was weeping. And he says, what's going on? He says, oh, my, my mom was baptized today. <laughs> he says, well, you should be excited about that. Isn't that good news? And she began to share how over the course of her life, she says, I've been praying for my mom for 20 years. And so often I was on the verge of stopping praying for her because it wasn't making any difference. She wasn't responding. It just felt like a waste of time. I was so discouraged, but I prayed anyway. And then she just broke and burst out in tears even more. Then she said, today I learned to never stop praying for someone. And so you may have someone... Might be your child, might be your parent, might be your friend, and you know, they're pretty obstinate. Keep praying. Pray that their heart will be softened. Because once they're softened like, like Zacchaeus, they're much more willing to listen. Zacchaeus is in a position where he is, he is ready to hear. That's why Jesus says, hey, let's take this offline, you and me, and go into your house and have a conversation. What Jesus did is offer him a simple invitation. There's a power in giving a simple invitation. And here's, here's the power that's involved in that invitation. You know, sometimes if you see someone, if I saw Zacchaeus in the tree and I says, hey, you, you despicable sinner, repent right now, get on your knees and accept Jesus Christ. You know, that's a pretty big ask. But to ask him, hey, can we go have coffee in your house? That's something that's very doable. It's already kind of moving them in a the direction of, okay, I can say yes to that. It's like Jesus, when he met the woman at the well, remember what he said to her? He said, can you give me a drink of water? You? You're asking me? You're a Jew? I'm a Samaritan? You're asking me for a drink of water? Yeah, I'm asking you for a drink of water. I, I, I can do that. I can do that. Give people an opportunity to do something they can do. You know, sometimes when you feel like this intimidation, like, oh, I don't know how to share Christ with this person, maybe the first step is this. Hey, would you be, would you be interested in coming to a meeting where I meet with a bunch of ladies and it's called MOPs, Mothers of Preschoolers, and we just learn about life and support one another um, or we have pals. It's a group of seniors that meet together once a month. Or I go to Celebrate Recovery. It's a great group of people who help us to work through the difficulties in our life. Uh, would you be interested in coming with me? I mean, what I talked about earlier, guys, what a great opportunity. Hey, would you like to go throw some horseshoes and have some ribs with me? Oh, yeah, sounds good. 
You know, they may not be willing to go to hear a sermon, go to a Sunday school class, but they're willing to do that. Give them something that moves them in the direction they need to go. Because once someone starts getting in that place, now the next yes gets a little bit easier. Whatever happened in that, in that house with Zacchaeus was powerful. And Luke doesn't tell us what happened. But the other people start grumbling like, I can't believe it. Jesus went into his house. None of those people had ever seen the inside of Zacchaeus' house. None of those people ever wanted to step inside of Zacchaeus' house. Jesus has no problem going in there. And here's something I learned about Jesus. We need to learn to be friends of sinners. Be their friend. Be their friend. See, Jesus was never ashamed to acknowledge those who acknowledged him. Everyone else looked at that man and said, scoundrel, cheater, thief. They were sitting in judgment on him. When Jesus looked at him, he said, sinner who needs grace. Sinner who needs grace. He saw a man broken. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that that we are to be like salt of the earth and the light of the world. And think about it. Salt only has impact when it touches the meat or the potatoes or the popcorn. You know, salt preserves and, and salt seasons, but it has no impact if it doesn't touch that thing. Similarly, light has no impact unless it enters into the darkness. It must go there. It must, it must immerse itself in the darkness. But Jesus is saying is, if you want to change people's lives, you've got to have contact. You've got to be close enough to people. You can't do it from a distance. And what Jesus does is, hey, let's take this a step further. Let's meet one-on-one. Let's talk about these things. And Zacchaeus felt loved by Jesus. He's unaware of his unworthiness. That's why he's hungry for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't join in the criticism of the crowd. Zacchaeus doesn't need a judge. He needs Jesus. It's easy to point a finger and judge. It's another thing to lead someone to Jesus. I know that people are afraid. Jesus, what are you doing? If you go into this man's house, you're basically saying that it's okay that what he does, that he's stealing from people and he's robbing us left and right, and he's, he's, he's imposing these huge taxes on us. If you go to his house, you're basically saying, it's okay. And Jesus, no, it's not. See, there's a difference between accepting and approving. There's a difference between accepting and approving. Accepting is personal. I accept you as a person. Approval has to do with behavior and beliefs, and, you know, th- thoughts and all that kind of stuff. You can accept someone without approving of someone. I mean, think about it, your own kids. Man, I don't like the music they listen to. I don't like the friends she hangs out with. You know, I don't like certain things. I love them, though. I accept them. I don't approve of some of those things. We, we know that, it, that you can do that. Well, think about the people around you. It's very easy to see people and then link the two and say, well, I can't be around that person because if, I, if I'm around them, it's basically telling them they're okay. No, it's not. It's basically telling them that you still love them. Here's what amazes me about Jesus. There never was anybody more holy than Jesus, okay? No, nobody more perfect than Jesus. And yet the most sinful people felt safe with him. The most sinful people said, you know what? I, I know that what I'm doing is wrong, but I love that guy. I mean, they're so opposite of Jesus. In fact, the tax collectors and prostitutes were the prime ones. And because they like to be around Jesus, people said, oh my goodness, he's a friend of sinners. What a compliment. Jesus had. And I would ask you, if you look at the people in your life, the circle of people you interact with, do they all think like you, look like you, vote like you? 
Because if so, you're probably not doing a really good job of loving the lost. Because we need to be around people unlike us. And how do I know that? Because Jesus, that's what he did. He was a friend of who? Friend of sinners. And by going into Zacchaeus' house, he was saying like, hey, Zacchaeus, I like you. Now, there's some stuff in your life I don't like, but I like you. God has a plan for your life. And I don't know what all they talked about, but somehow the conversation impacted Zacchaeus in such a way that his life began to change that day. And see, God can change a person's life. We can't change it. We can't tell someone to clean up their life before they come to Jesus. But in sharing Jesus, their life can begin to change. That's why our job is to do the teaching. His job is to do the transforming. You do the teaching, let God do the transforming. We cannot control how other people react. We cannot change someone else. We can merely share the truth of Jesus, what Jesus does. And whatever Jesus said to him, he came out of the house and says, oh my goodness, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to pay back four times what I took from them. I mean, think of the line of people that say like, yeah, you defrauded me. Me too. Me too. And, and okay, okay, I'll pay you. I'll pay you. Four times the Old Testament standard was you added 20% of what you took. He went way beyond that, 400%. 400%, I'm going to do four times what I've given, what I've taken. So somehow, I think Jesus might have told him something along the lines of what he said to the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler who saw Jesus and said how good he was, and then Jesus said, well, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And he goes, ah, ah, can't do that. And it's basically Jesus saying, you know, you said you obey the commandments, but the very first one, you shall have no other God. You have a God, and that God's called money, and you can't even part with your money. And so maybe he brought that up to Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus says, no, money's not my God. In fact, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. See, one of the, one of the quickest signs of a changed life is how they manage their money. Yes. That, that we loosen the grip on money. And Zacchaeus is not earning his salvation through his behavior. You cannot earn salvation. He's giving evidence of salvation. Jesus is saying, I know salvation has come to this house because look how he's behaving now. He's got a changed heart. No amount of good behavior can earn salvation, but salvation always results in changed behavior. Faith is taking a hold of Jesus. Repentance is letting hold of everything that replaced Jesus. And so faith, this man, he's, he's clinging to Jesus and he's letting go of everything else that took the place of Jesus in his life. In that place, in particular, money. You know what I love about Jesus' approach? Is he's not scaring him with hellfire and brimstone. It works. Hellfire and brimstone works. Not, not saying it doesn't. You can scare someone into heaven. You can tell someone how mad God is, how despicable they are, and they're going to burn in hell forever if they don't accept Jesus. Or you can say, God knows the misery you're living in with your sin, and he came to solve that. He came to forgive you, put you on a different path. And if you make Jesus Lord of your life, your life will be incredibly different. See, in the book of Romans, Paul says it this way. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What? God's kindness leads people to, I thought it was God's anger. I thought it was God's judgment. No, no, it's his kindness. It wasn't that God, so, God was so angry with the world that he gave his one and only son. It was that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And I want you to picture for a second in your head. If you were out camping and you had a little boy, say an eight-year-old son, You'd warn him again and again, you, you need to stay, stay where we can see you. But as the nightfall came, he, he was gone. You couldn't see him. You began to holler out for your son, 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 no response. First, you're a little bit angry. Now you're getting kind of panicked. 
You and your wife look everywhere, holler, no response. You tell the park officials, they go out with flashlights, they can't find anything. There's an all-out search, nothing is found. You can't even sleep that night. You're drinking coffee, you're pacing, you're praying. And as the sun begins to rise the next morning, you see a figure coming over the horizon and you recognize, I think that's our son. What do you do? You go running after, you go running toward that little boy. And when you get right there, you stop and you say, I need to let him have it. I need to tell him how much he, he disappointed us, how he let us down, how he angered his mother and me, scared the heck out of us, that he never should do that again. That's one, that, that's one logical, reasonable response. But more likely, I think he'll get to that son and he'll wrap his arms around him and he'll lift him up and say, we, we missed you so much, son, and where were you? We were so scared. And like this man in the story of the prodigal son, he would say, this son of mine was lost and is found. He was dead. We thought you were dead and you're alive again. We got to celebrate. That's how we should treat lost people. Dead, but need to be resurrected to life. Lost in sin, waiting for those to come on a rescue mission to throw them a lifeline. That's our job. That's the job of the church. We are throwing the lifeline. Jesus' mission is our mission, to seek and save the lost. And I just want to ask you, think of the lost people in your life, your family members, your neighbors, your classmates, your work associates, people you encounter as you go. What does your heart say about them? Have you become numb to them? Is the life-saving station that we gather in every Sunday the comfortable place where we just fellowship? Or are we getting energized to go back out there in our world and say, I need help, pastor. Help me to know how to reach my lost friends. And here's how we can do it. Christmas is coming. Never in the whole year you'll find an easier time to invite someone to church. So we have cards out in the foyer called invite cards. You can take an invite card. You can go down the hallway or go to your next door neighbor's house and just tap and say, hey, I don't know what, you got, what your plans are for Christmas Eve, but we're going to have family candlelight services and love to have you come and be our guest. What's the worst thing that could happen? This is a simple invitation. Worst thing that could happen is they would go like, uh, no, we've got plans for Christmas Eve. I doubt if anyone's going to spit in your face or slam the door. I mean, it's, it's, it's a low-risk thing. Worst thing is, uh, it's not going to work for us. Best thing, we'd love to do that. Follow up the next thing. How about we come by and pick you up at this time so that we can sit together? And, and you can assure them, hey, it's going to be a beautiful service. We're going to sing Christmas carols, some wonderful songs. We're going to share in the communion. We're going to sing Silent Night to the Lighting of Candles. We're going to hear a message about the birth of Jesus and what that means for us. I've known people whose spiritual journey began on Christmas Eve because someone invited them to come to their church. 